0: When people think of the Virgin Mary in terms of American religious history, there's a tendency to focus on opposition. For instance, Catholic devotion to Mary on the one side, and Protestant critique of that devotion on the other side. However, while recognizing the real differences in Catholic and Protestant belief about Mary, when people think of the Virgin Mary in terms of American religious history, There's a tendency to focus on opposition. For instance, Catholic devotion to Mary on the one side, and Protestant critique of that devotion on the other side. However, while recognizing the real differences in Catholic and Protestant belief about Mary, in her new book, The Valiant Woman, The Virgin Mary in 19th Century American Culture, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2016, Dr. Elizabeth Hayes Alvarez shows that such simple binaries are problematic. Through a careful study of newspaper accounts, travelogues, literature, and art, Alvarez shows how Catholics and Protestants, while differing in what they believed about Mary and how they interacted with her, utilized her in very similar ways within popular culture. For instance, ideas of the purity of womanhood and domestic queenship resonated strongly with both audiences. This fascinating study would therefore be of interest to scholars of American religion and would be appropriate in a graduate or upper-level undergraduate class. I hope you'll enjoy the interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rauch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Elizabeth Hayes Alvarez about her new book, The Valiant Woman, The Virgin Mary in 19th-Century American Culture. Elizabeth, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, I wonder if we could begin with our kind of traditional introduction. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Um, I was born in New Jersey. I went to college at Wellesley College in Massachusetts, where I studied cognitive science. Oh, wow. Um, But while I was there, I had inadvertently um, created a religion minor for myself along the way. Uh, then I worked on Wall Street for a couple years and decided I wanted to go to graduate school and I wanted to pursue that topic of religion. So I went to the University of Chicago Divinity School, where I focused on history of Christianity and American religious history. So I graduated from there in 2011, and I teach at Temple University oh, in excellent. Philadelphia.
0: Oh, good deal. Do you find Philadelphia very different from
1: New Jersey? Uh, well, I grew up in South Jersey, so culturally not so much, but I think Philadelphia is a wonderful city. I really enjoy teaching there. Oh, excellent. I've
0: enjoyed, I've I visited there uh, several times, and I always found it a very interesting place. Um, especially in terms of the religious history, I, I always try to visit St. John Neumann's shrine.
1: Absolutely. I have a class, we're taking multiple field trips, and that's one of the places that they very much asked me to take them they're fascinated by you know his uh his body in the altar there
0: oh yeah he's a he's an interesting guy i want to find you know he you know he was on, on unsolved mysteries no yeah that old tv show he was on it and i've never i saw it once on tv and i wanted to try and find a recording i'd never been able to locate one or even figure out what episode but he was he had his own little episode oh funny um, well, excellent. So you've written this really interesting book, the, the Valiant Woman, The Virgin Mary in 19th century American culture. So could you tell us, how did you come to write this book?
1: Sure. In graduate school, when I was casting around for a for a dissertation topic, I was thinking a lot about women and maternity. Um, and I had encountered in various 19th century photographs and texts, um, Images of Mary or descriptions of Mary and these were all Protestant texts or photographs taken in Protestant contexts. so I started to think about Protestant use of um, the Virgin Mary and Protestant attitudes toward the Virgin Mary in the 19th century as This developed into a dissertation and then later as it developed into the book it ultimately became I really decided that focusing on Protestant attitudes toward the Virgin Mary in isolation was unsatisfactory. I'd always been bothered by sort of an artificial divide between American Catholic history and American Protestant history. And because this was popular cultural images and popular cultural texts, there's no real boundary in popular culture between denominational communities. Um, So more and more I felt like the important thing was to listen to the conversation. Both Protestants and Catholics were reacting to each other, um, reacting to each other's theology, reacting to each other's interest in Mary, and they were both using Mary to uh, prescribe certain ideals of womanhood, uh, which in the 19th century were changing rapidly. So I decided what was what I should focus on is this conversation and this space where different Americans were contesting her imagery, contesting her theology, and building a sort of American Madonna together. So that's what the book ended up being.
0: Right, and that's really fascinating. And I I like that you took that approach. I find uh, I'm in uh, Korean religious studies, and oftentimes people just kind of stay within a religious community. Uh, for their studies. So they just focus on one group, and I think it it, um, it makes it really hard sometimes to, to um, really understand what's going on, and it kind of isolates things that shouldn't be isolated. Absolutely. So in taking this approach, um, uh, and I'm thinking of your introduction here, what is this book doing? Like, what is it about in this sense?
1: Sure. Um, the book is about, uh, well, first of all, the book is not about Uh, The book is not about Marian devotionalism, it's not about Marian apparitions, it's not about really Marian theology. What it is about is how Mary was understood, seen, portrayed in American popular culture, by which I mean um, prints and reproductions, uh, novels, museum exhibitions, advice literature, uh, religious tracts, um, anti-Catholic tracts, uh, all these sorts of ephemera and um, popular culture. Uh, how was Mary being portrayed in, in American popular culture? How was she seen in America in the 19th century? And further, I paid particular interest to the ways that different groups of Americans define their own identity with reference to Mary and each other's identity. And also how they defined womanhood, how they idealized womanhood, using imagery, um, descriptions, and even uh, implicit theological claims around who Mary, the mother of Jesus, was.
0: Right, and and that's one thing I I thought was really fascinating about this book and that I really enjoyed, was that I'm used to thinking uh, more in devotional terms, I'm used to thinking more in defined church doctrine, and so it was really refreshing to see this kind of popular culture approach.
1: Yeah, it's also a lot of fun. Yeah,
0: <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, and I sometimes joke. I, I teach. I often study religion and violence, and then I also teach sometimes courses on comics. And I explain, well, you know, the ones really depressing. So I got to do something to to relax.
1: Something fun, yeah. Yeah.
0: So your first chapter is entitled The Immaculate Conception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Conflict and Conversation, 1854 to 1855. So first of all, could you tell us about the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Virgin Mary, especially as this is, I think, one of the most misunderstood doctrines of Catholicism?
1: Yes, it absolutely is. Um, The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception refers to the conception of Mary herself, Um, When she was conceived in her mother's womb, in Anna's womb, Um, her mother traditionally is Anne, her father traditionally is Joachim, and it was in her conception, uh, the question of whether when she herself was conceived, um, did she inherit original sin, or was she in some way protected from inheriting original sin by God? Um, so that's what the Immaculate Conception Doctrine is. In declaring um, the Immaculate Conception, Pope Pius IX was declaring that it was the official dogma of the Catholic Church that when Mary was conceived, um, she was protected from inheriting original sin so that she was always pure in the moment of her own conception um, and that when she would come to bear the Christ child, she would be... Like the Ark of the Covenant, a pure vessel for his body to indwell. So that's the dogma. Um it was declared by Pope Pius the in eighteen fifty four.
0: And and why was that did that it take that long? I mean that's uh you know, would have been more than eighteen hundred years after she was conceived. Yeah um, why did it take that long to become Catholic um doctrine?
1: Yeah, well there was controversy um about whether or not Um, This pious belief was actually true throughout the, well, it started pretty early, but certainly in the 16th and 17th centuries, there was controversy, um, and this doctrine crystallized in those centuries. Um, Before that, historically, there had been a feast of the Immaculate Conception, which was celebrated throughout Europe. Um, So it was a belief that was widely held, but the theologians couldn't agree on it for a variety of reasons um, that involve uh, biblical text, whether or not there was an ancient precedent for this belief, um, whether there had been some church fathers who had argued against it or not. Um, But in time it was widely accepted and by the by the 19th century, Um, It really wasn't up for debate. It was accepted by most Catholics. In fact, um, America had been put under the patronage of Mary of the Immaculate Conception before the Immaculate Conception was declared dogma. So it was widely accepted. And why was it declared dogma in 1854? Um, That's an interesting question. And some people feel like it's clear that at the moment that Pius IX was struggling um, with a lot of political opposition, um, struggling to hold on to his political power, he made a very popular, easy-to-embrace um, declaration of dogma that Catholics could rally around, and it was a place where they could center their support for the Pope, who was at that at the moment that he was considering... Um, The Declaration in 1849, when he sent out the first encyclical about it, uh, he was actually in exile. Um, So, this was a, I mean, it it was certainly a rallying point and a place of optimism and hope. Um, Whether you see it as strategic, which is a more cynical way to see it, or whether you see it more positively as the Pope um, honoring the Blessed Mother. And asking for her protection and support, um, revitalizing the Catholic community at the moment that they were um, struggling with, you know, extreme political change uh, in Italy. One way or another, that su- that situation almost certainly had something to do with why it was declared at that moment in history.
0: And so then, how how did what were the different ways Americans reacted to the proclamation of the dogma?
1: Um. By and large, from what we can tell, um, Catholics embraced it, uh, were joyful about it, were optimistic and hopeful about it. Um, American Catholic bishops rallied around it, gave sermons about it, educated um, their parishes how to respond to any critique that their Protestant neighbors might raise about it. A lot of joy, hope, optimism. A lot of solidarity with Pope Pius IX. Um, in terms of American Protestants, what's interesting to me about their response was how much they cared. Uh, we're talking 1854, so we're you know within a decade of the Civil War breaking out. Um, there was certainly a lot going on in American politics and American culture in these years, and yet a significant amount of newspaper coverage was dedicated um, to the Immaculate Conception Proclamation. Uh, so American Protestants' investment in how Catholics thought and taught about Mary was fascinating to me. Why did they care so much? Um, what, what did it trigger for them? Um, obviously, overall, uh, they were they were quite uh, worried about it. it. They were bothered by it. They felt um, that. Well, to, to be clear, they had three primary arguments that they made about it. The first was that um, it was evidence that the pope controls Catholic minds, um, that people can't reach their own doctrinal, that Catholics can't reach their own doctrinal conclusions based on what Protestants call a free conscience and a free Bible. Um, so they were worried about the immaculate conception declaration as evidence of papal control over Catholic minds. They were worried about the same question you asked. Why now? Was this an innovation? Was the Catholic church making stuff up as it goes along? Um, and they were very worried about Mary's eclipse of Jesus that in elevating this female figure, um, both that a human being was being elevated to a position of honor that would detract from the divine Jesus, and that a female religious figure was being elevated or honored. And uh, there's a lot of concern in a lot of their writing about her her sex, um, about her as goddess, or her as this Catholic female idol. So that was, you know, an overview of the American Protestant response.
0: What? And that makes I, I like how you you phrase that last bit about how Protestants were seeing this as kind of a goddess because your second chapter then is the immac- immaculate conception and the elevation of the feminine the from 1855 to 1860s, and in this chapter you spend a lot of time looking at um, art which I, I thought was very interesting. So I wonder if you could tell us how are works of art and particularly the travel logs because you're, you're looking at images that are mass produced but also travel logs where people are going to view. European art, Um, why are they so important to understand how Americans imagined Mary in the 19th century?
1: Yeah, that's a a great question. I think um, what's important to know is how uh, prominent religious and Marian art was in the 19th century. There were new technologies for making lithographs and other kinds of print uh, reproductions of art you know, each decade, there would be advances about chromolithographs that added color, different kinds of technologies. Um, So at the start of the 19th century, you really just have etchings and engravings that are being reproduced. And over the course of the century, you get, you know, multicolored, um, very accurate prints of art. And as this is going on, um, American culture is struggling with the value, the validity of their own culture? Um, How should they interact with um, high-status, upper-class culture that was coming from the quote-unquote old world? Um, Would there be a new American kind of art, uh, like landscape art, that took the place of the old masters? Or would Americans show their own class status by knowing and being familiar with the old masters, um, classic art, classic music, etc. So art was functioning in America, well Marian art in particular, was functioning in America in at least two ways. Um, One, for both Catholics and Protestants, knowing and being familiar with the great religious art of Europe was a sign of class status. So this was a shared cultural inheritance and people who were able to afford to go overseas for the European tour were traveling to museums and churches, and they were encountering just this kind of artwork. So we have this religious art now being reproduced. Museums are starting to open in all the major cities in America, and they're hoping to acquire just this kind of art, the religious art, um, of the old masters, Murillo's, um, paintings by Raphael, etc. And then at the same time, there's a lot of changes in the ways women are seen and understood. And there's a, a sort of sentimental desire to understand women as pure and as maternal and as sort of um, the angel in the house this sort of sacred, pious figure in the home. So images, art reproductions of Mary became very popular for this other set of reasons as well. Uh, These are paintings of a female figure who's preternaturally pure. Um, She's representing holy womanhood. She's representing motherhood. So these images become popular among all all kinds of Americans, um, but definitely among Protestants. Um, both in the home as reproductions, but also in schools as the public school system starts to develop and spread as the kindergarten movement begins. Um, These sorts of images of religious art and of Mary become popular in all these places.
0: And this is among both Catholics and Protestants.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So, that, that, again, and that's one thing I really, and for our listeners, one thing that's, you know, this fascinates me because I'm so used to thinking, okay, Catholics believe A, so therefore Protestants must be, believe B. And here you're finding these these really interesting similarities based on them being in a similar American culture.
1: Well, you know, honestly, I, I would push back on the word belief. Okay. Uh, for instance, Protestants objected pretty vociferously to the theology of the Immaculate Conception. Right. But Immaculate Conception paintings by Murillo were among the most popular paintings that Protestants um, produced, displayed, uh, praised, and enjoyed. But they didn't believe in the Immaculate Conception. Uh,
0: so how did they, they deal with that kind of tension?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. And it's a question that I examine in, the, in Chapter 2. Um, one of the ways that they resolved that tension was by context— um, a painting in an art museum signified class status. A reproduction in a home or in a kindergarten signified sentimentalized femininity. A painting in any kind of Catholic context, especially a Catholic church, was idolatry. So part of it was just how art was being contextualized. Um, but uh, what I examine is how many roles Mary is playing. One of the roles Mary is playing is as an as an indicator of Catholicism, which is how many Americans see Marian imagery today. but that really didn't become solidified and the primary role of of Marian imagery until the end of the nineteenth century. um It was much more likely in the middle of the nineteenth century to see Mary as an indication of just Christianity in general um Uh, Elevated femininity, holy femininity, pious womanhood, all of these um, uses and functions for her imagery were really common. Um, So not only do you see pictures of her everywhere, um, but Protestants write poetry about her. Uh, Famous examples are Nathaniel Hawthorne and Harriet Beecher Stowe, who both used uh, Marian imagery throughout their novels, but also owned reproductions of paintings of Mary and hung them prominently in their homes. So yeah, the the idea that she was not a a Protestant figure, um, she was definitely not present in Protestant churches, but she was in fact a pretty popular, um, both literary and visual figure for Protestants in the 19th century.
0: Well, that's really, like I said, that's just very interesting to me because I just don't think about that much, um, today so um if we move on then if we we think about your third chapter you're you know in, in that second chapter you're really looking at a lot of art in the third chapter you're moving more to literature and this chapter is entitled the woman highly blessed marian art and anna jameson's great hopes i guess i'm sorry it's not like you're you're changing completely it's but you're bringing literature more into conversation with art so could you tell us a little bit who was anna jameson
1: uh, Anna Jameson was an English-born um, Anglican woman who uh, was a art historian, very, very popular. She wrote a series on sacred and legendary art, um, five-volume its It's referenced all over in the nineteenth century. Henry James references characters American characters traveling um abroad carrying anna jameson's text with them to help them make sense um of art when they're traveling overseas so she she was very popular um you know female intellectual scholar and historian she also wrote about um Shakespeare, Shakespearean texts, women in Shakespearean texts, etc. So that's who she was. She lived in America and in Canada for a while as well. And I write about the book in the chapter because she's very explicit in encouraging Protestants to reclaim Mary, um, not just as this visual figure, but also as a, I want to say a spiritual figure though that's using very modern language the way she put it was that she was translating Mary into poetry um, she didn't believe that Mary should be a site of devotion as she was for Catholics but she believed that uh, without Mary Protestantism had no um, female form had no femininity and that it was uh, very difficult uh, for women to thrive within Protestant Christianity without an image of this holy elevated. Um, I don't want to say divine. She didn't think Mary was divine, but she loved paintings of Mary enthroned in heaven. She loved this dignified, regal, powerful, holy image of Mary. So she was reclaiming that and explicitly encouraging, um, Her audience, and she assumed her readership, uh, was primarily Protestant, uh, and she was encouraging them uh, to be open to enjoying this uh, art, not just for its own sake as art, uh, but for this religious resource of uh, the female or the elevated feminine within Christianity. And
0: how does she do that through her writings?
1: She recommends certain paintings over other paintings. She doesn't like paintings where Mary is depicted as girlish or shy or um, overly sentimental. Instead, she likes paintings where she's seen as noble and regal and powerful. So she has, you know, a, a very... I would say proto-feminist. um she certainly predates uh you know the feminism that we know, um but this very this concern for for enlarging women's sphere of action and place in society by allowing them to see Mary as this model of Christian womanhood that's actually a powerful and expansive model.
0: And it's, it's kind of interesting to me, right, because, you know, this, this is a book on American culture, um, but an English woman figures into it, and an Anglican. Can yeah. you tell us a, a little bit about that and the significant her significance in American culture?
1: Sure. Well, a lot of what's going on in the 19th century is transatlantic. For Catholics, that means a lot of things. Um, it means an, an interest in things that are being published in, in Rome and in France and in all sorts of countries where people are are, um, emigrating from. For Protestants, there's a a transatlantic um, connection with England, where many, many texts that people are reading and buying and consuming are being written in England. Uh, So you really can't look at American culture and just sort of cut it off at American borders. I brought up Henry James, that that novel was called The American. And one of the ways he indicated that the uh, that the hero of the book was an American was that he was carrying around Jameson's books. So there's not really like a place where culture sort of begins and ends at national borders.
0: Excellent. And I was just, um, for our listeners too, one strong point of um – Elizabeth's book, in this chapter particularly, is there's lots of images, um, there's lots of paintings, and, and I, I was checking through and right, they're all of Mary is a very powerful uh, figure.
1: Yeah, um, certainly a... the ones that Jameson recommended all were. And I think a lot of people, when they hear about my book, they say, well, sure, there were probably Madonna and child images in the 19th century because of the cult of domesticity and this emphasis on motherhood. And that's exactly right. There were many. Um, Madonna and Child images, in particular the seated Madonna by Raphael, was a really prevalent image in the 19th century. But that that wasn't the majority. Um, there were many uh, images and reproductions of Mary alone, or in the Sistine Madonna, which was the most popular. Image and and was widely believed to be the best painting ever painted by nineteenth century Americans. In the Sistine Madonna, you see Mary holding the baby Jesus, but it's not a it's not like a Madonna and Child image that's showing this nurturing motherhood. Um, It's clearly an image where Mary is is you know floating on clouds and looking out at eternity. A very strong. image of her and Jesus is is sort of in her arms but she's not interacting with him or looking at him
0: right yeah yeah exactly and I'm I'm looking at um on your book page 112 there's Hans Holbein the Younger um uh one of his paintings and uh Mm -hmm. Jameson you you have her a quote from her saying that in purity dignity humility and intellectual grace this exquisite Madonna has never been surpassed not even by Raphael The face Mm -hmm. once seen haunts the memory. Mm -hmm. And it's a wonderful painting because in addition, I mean, her face does have all that, but there's people kneeling around Mary. And I mean, they're kneeling to the the Christ child she's holding, but she's not Mm -hmm. kneeling. Right. Right. Yeah. She's she's standing up.
1: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And in the majority of paintings of Mary that became popular, um, that was the case. Certainly in all the Immaculate Conception imagery, um, which was very popular, especially Murillo's paintings, she's not holding Jesus. It's just Mary on a crescent moon rising in in the air. So there's a lot of that and and that's all very popular because there was this interest in in idealizing womanhood a certain way, pious womanhood. And she was a very multi-valiant figure. You could read a lot into her imagery and by emphasizing different aspects of her story and her theology, um, you could convey a, a lot of different meanings about about womanhood and Christian womanhood, and, and if you pause and think about it for a minute, um we assume uh, that you know today that there isn 't a lot of protestant interest in in the Virgin Mary, but you, it 's strange when you think about it that there wouldn't be right because she 's jesus 's mother and one of the few really prominent women in the Bible in the New Testament of the Bible. So the fact that there's not that omission is in response to this 19th century story about Catholic immigration, Catholic devotionalism. Um, it, it's sort of the working out of the interaction between these two communities that she became so ignored in American Protestant Christianity.
0: Right, right. So. Uh, Moving on, in in your your fourth chapter, Revitalizing Church and Culture, The Marian Heroines of Anna Dorsey and Alexander Stuart Walsh, 1880s to 1890s, could you tell us a little bit about who these two authors were?
1: Sure. Anna Dorsey is a convert to Catholicism. She's an American, and she becomes a very prolific novelist. I think she writes over 40 books, maybe more. Um, she receives medals of honor. She's recognized by the Pope. Um, she writes for the Boston Pilot and she's a, a fairly well known writer. And what she writes is sort of Catholic domestic fiction. She's writing stories about, you know, Irish Catholic families that, you know, are moral and good and have good examples for their non Catholic neighbors, etc. So that's who she is. Alexander Stuart Walsh was a Baptist minister. He pastored two churches in Brooklyn, and then he pastored 33rd Street Baptist Church in Manhattan. Um, so he was pretty well-known in New York. He ran for state senate um, unsuccessfully, but you know he was a, a, a well-known, well-connected person. And he wrote a novel called Mary, Queen of the House of David and Mother of... The Lord, I believe, is Mother of Our Lord, perhaps. Um, but he wrote an, um, a basically a Marian-themed novel, and it was the only novel he ever wrote. Uh, and both, I, I compare a book by Dorsey called Adrift, which she wrote in 1887, to Alexander Stuart Walsh's book, which he also wrote in 1887. So they came out the same year. Um, so I put those two books, one by a Baptist and one by a, a Catholic convert, in conversation in that chapter.
0: Right. And it, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, you you pick people about as different as can be in many respects. And, and what was so fascinating, what I think p- proves much of your point, that there is a, these shared images of the Virgin Mary in um, American culture at this time, is how they're similar.
1: Yeah, they're – they have – places that have almost identical scenes, which at first made me wonder if possibly they had read each other's manuscripts, but they didn't know each other. Um, They weren't living in the same place and they both came out at the same time. I don't think there's any way they could have, in fact. Um, And in fact, there's no evidence that Alexander Stuart Walsh was reading Catholic domestic fiction at all. So I just imagine that these themes were were in the air. The similarities, um, they both had a vulnerable female heroine. Uh, Even though Walsh's book is called Mary, Queen of the House of David, it wasn't actually a biography of the Virgin Mary. It was the story of a young Jewish girl um, during the Crusades uh, who becomes a Christian. So he's telling a sort of medieval romance um, like Ivan Ho, or like Ben Hur, that kind of a, a medieval sort of epic, sweeping, um, romanticized historic novel. And in both of their books, uh, Dorsey's book is is much more like typical Catholic domestic fiction. But in both of their books, there's a young heroine who's vulnerable, who basically needs to be reconciled with Christianity, but can't come to God through Jesus. Um, both of these girls are only able to uh, have a conversion experience and become Christian uh, through learning the history and the life of Mary and praying basically in front of statues of Mary to Mary to help them through their conversions. Those are not the only things they have in common. They actually have a lot in common despite very different settings. Uh, but that overarching um, storyline and scenes they have in common. And and two things are interesting to me about this. The first thing that I really focus on is that for both of these authors, they're not just talking about what role Mary plays in Christian conversion. They're talking about what a woman's life should be. Um, both of these women have marriage proposals are uncomfortable with. They want to have a larger life than just being a wife and mother. They feel called by God to serve. Um, so they reject marriage proposals so that they can serve God. Uh, both of these women want to do things like speak publicly and minister to people. And in talking in talking about Mary and in portraying these Marian heroines, because both are very much identified with Mary. Uh, Both are described as sort of wearing light blue dresses and looking beautiful surrounded by roses, etc. Both authors are working out something about the woman question, about the role of women in society, which was an ongoing conversation that was happening in American culture in 1887. Particularly, they're both worried about marriage and marriage reform and questions around that. But they're using this Marian imagery to tell this story um, and to write about it. And so so that's really fascinating to me. But what's really fascinating to me is that I immediately read the reviews of this Baptist minister's book about Mary, thinking, well, what did his peers say? And what every one of them said was, what a marvelous book. He's really <laughs> dealing with the woman question. And, and that was just fascinating to me. That no one read this as theologically problematic at all. Um, and, you know, I read just dozens and dozens and dozens of reviews, and all of them were just like he he offers a great kind of compromise position on the woman question, and everyone should read his marvelous book. And, and also, um, Anna Dorsey's book, Adrift, which was clearly written for a Catholic audience, I found evidence in several Protestant publications. Of um, Protestant magazines recommending this as good literature for Protestant girls—that it's wow. that it's positive and has a good moral story, um, despite it being a Catholic author. So, so I just found the reception of both texts to be fascinating.
0: To me, that's that's really astounding. I, I you know, I'm in South Carolina. We're, we're deep in Baptist country, and uh, the one when I teach about religion the one area that I, I I really get any pushback on is when I try and talk about Catholic understandings of the community of saints <laughs> and of the place of Mary in, in Catholic theology. And that's when people start... You know, usually they just they just listen politely, and that's when people start to kind of argue with me, and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm, I can't argue with you <laughs> about this. I'm just explaining what, what Catholics think about this. So it, it, that's to me is astounding. Yeah, what you're describing because there's no way that would fly now. I think it
1: was astounding to me. I mean, my first assumption was, oh, this Baptist is having the experience that some like Anglo Catholics were having, like some sort of high Mariology, and that maybe that's what's happening. But that's not that's not what was happening. He didn't. He stayed Baptist his whole life. He was completely, you know, orthodox Baptist, if you can apply that term to Baptist. Um, yeah, he was, he was not doing something theologically unusual for himself. What he was doing was trying to write about um, women and women in society. And he was using the mother of Jesus um, and the role she could play within Christianity as an obvious place to think and talk about that. And like I said earlier, why isn't it an obvious place to think and talk about that uh, within I wonder, a Christian community?
0: I wonder if it was more possible for the, the, the modernist-fundamentalist split to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I write about that in the epilogue, that I think that's one reason oh, that Protestants okay. stopped talking about Mary um, and stop trying to find a use for her. Because uh, I, I, I argue, or I at least posit very quickly, that fundamental, like in the fundamentals, she had such a specific um, and narrow role. Right. That she wasn't open to sort of metaphorical constructions and, you know, sentimental thinking anymore.
0: Well, I like you brought this idea of rhetoric because in in chapter five, um, you talk about this idea of uh, queen of heaven and queen of home, Marian models of domestic queenship from the 1880s to nineteen hundred. So could you tell us a little bit about the rhetoric of queenship and about the Catholic understanding of Mary as the Queen of Heaven?
1: Sure. The Catholic understanding of Mary as the Queen of Heaven is just that Mary ascends to Heaven, that she's seated, um, you know, near Jesus, and that she has an honored, revered, um, crowned or enthroned role um, in which she, you know, prays um, for for people and intercedes for people and asks Jesus, um, you know, to to hear their request and be merciful to them. Um, so, Catholic Queen of Heaven is a a, a visual and artistic trope and a theological trope that was around for for centuries and centuries. Um, it's popular among Catholics in America in the 19th century, especially after the Immaculate Conception Declaration, where during the ceremony, um, Pope Pius IX uh, literally places a, a beautiful jeweled crown onto a statue of Mary. Um, so so that imagery is, is sort of always popular and, and remains popular through the 19th century. What was interesting to me is how much uh, the language of domestic queenship became popular uh, in American culture, especially at the end of the 19th century, in the 1880s, 1890s, etc. So it's just everywhere. Books are dedicated to women. They're called queens of the home. Courier and Ives has just hundreds of, of prints called queen of love, queen of beauty, queen of the home. In decorating guides, people recommend, you know, reproductions of enthroned Marys, but also like literally like Queen Louise of Prussia should be on your wall in your dining room. And this is just wild to me, this whole moment um, in American culture where queenship is being romanticized. Uh, you know, because America obviously is an anti-monarch democracy, etc. So,
0: right, right. No, very different. Exactly.
1: So in that chapter, I look at what's going on with this. I look at the rhetoric of, um, you know, around Queen Victoria and how Americans, um, at first resist her, but then later really embrace her because she acts out a certain kind of womanhood and domesticity. Um, and, and Americans, you know, like that about her and like some other things about her, her policy choices. Um, and, and just, I, I investigate, um, this aesthetic movement of, of romanticizing, uh, you know, romantic medievalism that's happening. But I also look at the ways that Catholic ideas about Mary as queen are echoed, mirrored, picked up by um, Protestants. So I examine that in a chapter. And my favorite part of the chapter is actually the end of the chapter. I think it's the end of that chapter. Um, When I look at new woman um, imagery and language, and in particular, a novel of Mary Ives Todd, who wrote the hetero- Heterodox Marriage of a New Woman and other kind of new woman literature, but she also wrote a book in 1908 called American Madonna. And in that she just she just does this sort of amazing over-the-top identification of this young businesswoman with Mary. And in the end, there's a culminating scene where this this young girl goes to her Madonna room that's full of Marian paintings and reproductions. And she kneels down before Mary and comes to the decision that as she doesn't use the word in this text, she doesn't use the word new woman, but as a as a businesswoman. Um, She's grappling with whether or not she should she should get married. And she decides that actually what she's going to do is take her lover on a free love basis um, without legal marriage. And that in doing so, she's going to become a Madonna woman. And I just find this just such a sort of shocking, fascinating scene. Um, But what's interesting is that for Mary Ives Todd in this character, the way that she's identifying with Mary is, is the part of Mary that was not um, dominated by a man. The idea of the Virgin Mary being a woman who conceived a child without being sort of covered, owned, um, controlled by a man. She conceived this child basically on her own. And so this idea of Mary being this empowered figure um, is, is what Mary Ives Todd uh, riffs off of in, in telling the story. So it's a really different use, right, of Marian imagery um, that that you get actually now moving into the 20th century.
0: What Was the religious press, did, did she also get good reviews? Or? Oh, well,
1: no, she was a controversial figure, right? Because right. all her books recommended new womanhood and things like, you know, women becoming businesswomen and and independent and and free love. So she was seen as a radical and controversial figure. Um. Oh, so great. Sure, it got perfectly good press among people who who liked her anyway.
0: Okay, gotcha.
1: <laughs> so, you
0: know that that kind of brings us to the um. You know, your book sort of starts in 1854 with the Immaculate Conception. Then I like how you in your your epilogue you you examine. How people think back 50 years, right? 1904. It's the 50th anniversary of the declaration of the Immaculate Conception. How are Protestant and Catholic reactions, or I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. reactions different uh, in the 15th, an- 50th anniversary versus when it was initially proclaimed?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, honestly, it's just much more subdued. So this was a great moment for me because all the newspapers were again picking up this same story. Um Pope Pius X declares a jubilee year. There're celebrations in New York and Boston. Um and the press is covering the story again. Um but it's 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 much more subdued. Um Catholics had predicted kind of triumphalist stories that after the Immaculate Conception declaration Um, that the Pope's power would be renewed and, you know, rebellion and secularism would be um, suppressed. And that is not historically what happened. Um, So there's, there's a, um, a quality of sort of conceding a little bit of defeat in some of the Catholic press. That's probably overstating it, but they express worry and defensiveness and like, even though it's been 50 years, our patron Mary is still going to help us um, kind of, you know, culturally, you know, win. So so there's a, a defensiveness and, and a subdued kind of, well, it's not playing out how we expected, but it's still going to play out in the Catholic response. Um, in the Protestant response, it's just much more normal or typical what we would expect to see today. Um, they are much more focused on the celebrations being expensive, especially those in Rome. Like why are they spending all this money? Um, and there's a lot of condemnation about the lavishness about of the celebrations, but there's very little interest in um, arguing about Mary herself or what her role should be, which to me indicated that to some degree she's already been conceded now to the Catholics Um she, she's more of a, a curiosity now, instead of this pitched battle for who gets to define her and use her, um, and this investment about what's said about her theologically. There's there's sort of a, a kind of like, okay, Catholics are doing some sort of weird Catholic Mary thing, which I think is more what uh, readers today um, would expect the Protestant reaction to be.
0: Right. Okay. So... What led then to this decline? How does she go from someone who, like you said, you know people are kind of contesting for the right to define to to people just saying, well, she's cat she she belongs to the Catholics. what what happened?
1: So this is an epilogue, which means that instead of making detailed arguments with a lot of evidence, i'm I'm being kind of speculative. Um so I have hunches about what happened and what leaded led to the decline at this point. Um, The decline really happens in the first decade or two of the 20th century where all of a sudden um, most Protestants do stop talking about her and I speculate several things one we alluded to earlier Which was uh, the the fundamentalist modernist split and the very specific role um, that fundamentalists had for Mary uh, in in the original fundamentals Um, they affirm of course uh, the virgin birth of Jesus um, but that that's sort of the only role allotted to her in, in the fundamentals. I think another part of it was that the Pope had a lot less political power. And so Americans were just much less worried in the 20th century about him controlling the Catholic vote. They still were worried about it. I mean, it definitely came up you know, right through Kennedy's election, but they were much less worried about it. Also, Catholics um, established a really large and flourishing community in America. So Catholics have been in America since before the beginning. But in the 19th century, it went from hundreds of thousands of Catholics to like 14 million Catholics in America. It It was massive growth of the Catholic community and Catholic devotionalism. Including and maybe especially Catholic Marian devotionalism was a unifying um, element for Catholics who were coming from all different countries and and who were coming to America speaking different languages. And eventually um, Catholic Catholic devotionalism made Mary so prominent um, and so identified with the Catholic community that I think she was just less available as this multivalent symbol she just started to indicate catholic identity which made her less available for protestants for other uses and also i think in the early uh, years in the, in the 19th century women's movement um, there was a need and a desire to cloak um arguments for woman suffrage and for marriage reform in a in a religious idiom in a non-threatening christian idiom and by the 20th century because of successes one Um, a lot of that was left behind and activists stopped using sort of as much religious imagery to make their arguments and just made them more directly.
0: If she declined, then what do you you think will be her future? Do you think you see that to things will just kind of stay the way they are? Do you see a resurgence?
1: Oh, I don't Uh, know. Uh, You're a historian. Do you predict the future?
0: Right, exactly.
1: It's hard to be asked to that. I mean, I, I think there will be. I think there will be because I think that, um, I think there's still a lot of interest in feminine divine imagery. And certainly there's renewed interest among American women in, for instance, Hindu goddesses. Um, a lot of women who have yoga practices are expanding their thinking. They're reading things like awakening Shakti, which, um, kind of tells the stories of Hindu goddesses um, in idioms that American women can relate to and understand. So my feeling is this interest um, in, you know, the feminine divine, if I can say that. Um, I think it's there um, for people who are on I don't know how to put it. I was going to say on the margins of Orthodox Christianity, but that's not quite what I want to say because I don't think of one set place as being central and another place being marginal. Um, but there's certainly a lot of people who are still thinking um, with Christian terminology um, and within a Christian context who are also having this longing for, for a more female way to understand holiness, transcendence, or the divine. So there's there's been a couple of recent books in the last decade or so about um, Mary and reclaiming Mary, but I'm thinking there probably will be more. Uh, we'll have to wait and see.
0: Well, a decade ago or so, wasn't there that movie? What was it called, The Nativity Story?
1: Yeah, yeah. Did,
0: did mean, you did you?
1: I didn't see it. I have um, I, I have to almost check because uh, I I'm having trouble off the top of my head. But yes, that's what it was. Beverly D'Onofrio, who wrote Riding in Cars with Boys, she's a novelist. She also wrote Looking for Mary or The Blessed Mother of Me and Me, which was her own conversion memoir of finding her way back to her Christian faith. Um she's a Catholic uh through Mary. And right. then uh Patricia Hampel wrote Virgin Time in Search of the contempl- Contemplative Life. Which was an account of her pilgrimage to Lourdes and her kind of coming to terms with Christianity through Mary. There's more of them. There's several uh that are that are on the border. And even Sue Monk Kidd, who does a lot with the divine feminine, um, she she reflects on having been fairly worried about Mary as being a repressive symbol for women and how now she sees Mary as a much more expansive and positive uh, place for women to relate to the divine. So she's, she's rethinking how she talks about Mary as well.
0: Right. Right. It'd be interesting if, if you ever got the chance to hear, to watch the nativity story, what you're, cause it's really focused on Mary. I'll check it out. Um, and I just remember my wife who's, who's from the Philippines uh, and it's very devout. Catholic did not like it. No. So there it seems like uh, the unfortunate the, what can I say that the popular culture is separating <laughs> perhaps again because it was a very Protestant understanding and my wife did not like it. Interesting.
1: Um, I'll have to check it out.
0: So, yeah. <laughs> so um, and I, I apologize. I sh- This should have been one of the very first questions I asked. Why the Valiant Woman? Why is that your title?
1: Oh, that's. That's a good question. Um, So the valiant woman is a way that various writers, both Catholic and Protestant, referred to Mary um, during the 19th century. In my epilogue at the front of the book, I have a quote or two um, by two different Catholic writers who talk about her as the valiant woman. So it's one of the ways she was referred to, and I liked it because I'm writing about how Mary is figuring, um, representing sort of idealized Christian womanhood. And for a lot of both Catholics and Protestants, this, uh, ideal of womanhood was actually pretty expansive. Um, and I liked valiant. I like that that word kept coming up because I think a lot of women who did think about, write about, and embrace, um, Marian imagery, uh, we're emphasizing that aspect of her, sort of her strength and her bravery. So that's why The Valiant Woman.
0: Oh, Excellent. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, um, and I thank you for that. But I do want to take a little bit more time to ask you one question, uh, more, one more question. So what are you working on now?
1: So currently I'm working on two projects. Um This past year, I published Religion in Philadelphia, which I edited. And it's a series of articles, um, a a series of chapters written about the religious history of Philadelphia. And now I have sort of two projects underway, and I don't know which is going to become a book first. I've been working for years um, on a project that really is an outgrowth of, of The Valiant Woman, looking at gendered rhetoric in anti-Catholic propaganda. So the places where um, Catholics are derided as womanly or womanish, uh, and that's contrasted to Protestantism as being a male rational, um, sort of non-messy thing. Uh, So one of the projects I've been looking at, all this sort of anti-Catholic propaganda and all the gendered rhetoric in it, but I'm also doing a side project that I don't know what's gonna come of it, where I'm looking at places in American history where um, religious texts have been published, especially by secular, non-religious publishers, and how oh. they were sort of presented and marketed to the American public. So, um, you know, Christian Science, uh, uh, Christian science um, Mary Baker Eddy's text, I'm sorry, the name is escaping me right now, but with a key to the scriptures. Oh, Science and Health? Science and Health with a Key to the Scriptures. Thank you. The Book of Mormon, which was originally published, you know, by a regular press. Uh, Even even like Dianetics, (laughs) going a little further. um, Some of the Campbellite texts. Just places where religious texts are being published and how they're being marketed and received by the public. Because many of these texts... um, at these different historical moments, have a fad-like embrace, and then let, sort of a big reaction against them. And I, I just find it interesting to look at these different moments in sort of American publishing history, and, and how the public responded to these texts that make explicit religious claims. They, they aren't about religion. They're They make religious claims um claim to be providing a new a new insight into the nature of reality or the nature of god so that, but, that's those a good sound, project we'll see if that comes to anything
0: those sound like really cool projects and i um we were for our listeners we were chatting before this you you teach a 4-4 load i do So this is i do this is impressive and, that you can. Do and i have this.
1: three kids
0: Oh my gosh, yeah. wow. So you just, you just don't sleep then, I assume.
1: Yeah, well, it's good to be busy. Sometimes, I don't know if you find this, but sometimes busyness sort of um, is a self-perpetuating thing. The busier you are, the more work you get done.
0: Yeah, exactly. I found that the, uh, I, I thought I uh, when I got married, I became more productive. And then with each child, we I become more productive because I have to be. Exactly, <laughs> you're just on. Right. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to us.
1: Thank you for having me
0: this has been the christian studies channel of the new books network i'm dr franklin roush of Lander university the host of the channel i want to thank you for listening to this interview and i hope you'll come back and listen to another one soon